Laura London, and you're listening to Speaking of Jung. Joining us today for episode 61 is Jungian analyst and architect Ruth Amon in Arau, Switzerland. She is a graduate of the C.G. Jung Institute in Kusnacht, where she is now a lecturer and training analyst. She studied with Dora Kalf, the pioneer of therapeutic sand play, and she is a past president of the International Society for Sand Play Therapy. Mrs. Amon earned her diploma in architecture from the ETH Zurich, the leading Swiss institution of higher education in the technical and natural sciences. Their Department of Architecture is one of the most highly regarded faculties of architecture in the world. She has lectured internationally on the relationship between architecture and psychology, the interaction between the built outer world and the humane inner world. Her books include Healing and Transformation in Sand Play, Creative Processes Become Visible, and The Enchantment of Gardens, A Psychological Approach. Currently, Mrs. Amon is the curator of the picture archive of the C.G. Jung Institute in Kusnacht, comprising of 4,500 pieces of original artwork by Jung's patients from the years 1917 to 1955, and around 6,000 works created by the patients of his student, Yolanda Jacobi. Analysands were asked to paint and draw their inner images, like Jung did. Series of images were created as part of the therapeutic process of active imagination. In 2018, on the occasion of the 70th anniversary of the founding of the Jung Institute, the picture archive was presented to the public for the first time in the exhibition In the Land of Imagination, the C.G. Jung Collection, on display at the Museum im Lagerhaus in St. Gallen, Switzerland. And last year, a book about the picture archive, Tesori del Incancho, The Book of the Pictures, edited by Mrs. Amon, along with fellow Jungian analysts Verena Cast and Ingrid Riddle, was published in Italian. In June of this year, Mrs. Amon will present the Memorial Day Lecture online, a collaborative event which takes place every year on the anniversary of Jung's death. On this, the 59th year, she will present The Janus-Faced Archivist, thinking about 4,500 colorful pictures sleeping in gray boxes. This interview is being recorded on Wednesday, April 29th, 2020, through the magic of Skype. Hello, Mrs. Amon. Hello, Mrs. London. <laughs> How are you today? I'm fine and I'm happy to speak with you. Your introduction was really beautiful. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. I am fascinated by your life and your work. And when I started to mention online that you were my next guest, I brought up the fact that you are an architect. And people were so interested in that because we've never tied the two together, architecture and psychology. And I was wondering if we could start there since initially you were an architect, but actually you had mentioned to me that you went to art school before you became an architect, right? Yes. 
You must know that when I finished my maturität, which is the end of gymnasium in Switzerland, mm-hmm. what could I do? My best marks were in mathematics, Italian, history, and painting. Mm-hmm. Art. So the, what, what, what are you doing out of this? And then I um, decided first to go to the art uh, school. Also, at this time, it was ge- called Kunstgewerbeschule in Zürich. And there I was for half a year. But then my teachers told me, no, no, that's not the place for you. You should go to the ETH. And I was happy to do it. And I so was my father. He even said to me, congratulations, when I told him. And then uh, I started my training at ETH, which is called the Swiss Federal Institute of Technology. At this time, architecture, the training for architecture had still a lot to do with art. Mm, Okay. There was sculpting, there was theory of cultures, and there was a history of art. All this was integrated into the technical um, part of architecture. Design also was made by hand. Hmm? Oh, right. Computers at the time. So I was there in um, my training. My internship, what we called it this practicum, I did in London and in Paris. Oh, okay. Which was a very interesting uh, uh, yeah. competition. Actually, London was human, friendly, nice. Paris was cold, ah. snobbish. Okay, it's not what we imagine. Huh? But I must tell you that during my training there, I can't tell you all this why it came, but our professor said to us or a group of us, and especially to me, the sentence, how did you, th- did you think at all about how children will feel in, do- in the midst of these concrete towers? We were designing wonderful towers as you have in Chicago, many. Mm-hmm. And he said to me, did you ever think about the feeling of the children? Oh. I could sink into the earth because no. We didn't think about it. Mm-hmm. And from this moment on, I thought one day, I really want to know more about the psyche of... Oh, okay. That was the, the trigger. I was so ashamed. Mm-hmm. Moment. So shame in this uh, way was the starting point for my psychological training later. Well, I had also heard you say that you never intended to be a therapist when you went to the Jung Institute. You just wanted to learn. And I could totally relate to that because I have never wanted to become a therapist. But I've always been interested in the psyche, in my psychology, and in the psychology of others. Um, But I think that's the first time I had ever heard an analyst say that they never wanted to be a therapist. You must know, my grandfather was a famous doctor. 
doctor I wanted to become, but then I did not do it. My father was a teacher. So anything that had to do with teaching, for me, I thought I will never be able to do this. And I, but, you know, life is going its own way. I divorced my architect husband. And at this time, it was very clear that the office we had went with him. So I lost the background from, and on one hand, I lost the background. On the other hand, I had three young children with me. Mm -hmm. So what did I do? I had time, and then I started to listen to the lectures in Jung Institute. And then I decided to do the, the training still not wanting to become a psychotherapist. But at this time, we could do the training, and after the propedeuticum, which is the middle exam, Mm -hmm. um, we have to work. I had to start working, and because I already worked with Dora Kalf at the time, I was starting to work with children first, and then with adults, and in no time, I had a full practice. I didn't know how it came. It just flew to me. Well, tell us a little, you mentioned Dora Kalf. Tell us a little bit about who she was. <laughs> who she was. Um, I think I don't want to speak about who she was in general because you can read this everywhere. Okay. Especially in America, everybody knows better than we know in Switzerland. But she was, um, at this time, when I was already in training in Jung Institute, my brother Peter did uh, a documentary with her about the method of sound play. And he said, why don't you come and look at what we do? And I went there, and then she said to me, smiling, a little bit seducing how she was, very charming, why don't you do a sandplay process? And I said, yes, why not? You mentioned your brother, Peter. He was my guest in episode 57. I will put a link to that in the show notes. And I just want to clarify, so you met Mrs. Kalf when she was training at the Jung Institute? No, 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 no. She was teaching? Mrs. Kalf had already her practice as a sandplay therapist. And after some years, Peter, my brother, asked Mm -hmm. to do a documentary film about the method. Okay. That was, um, if I'm right, in year 61 or something like this. Okay, so that's how you met her, through your brother, Peter. It was later, of course. But... When when they were uh, doing the film, she already had a full practice and was for years. Yeah, no, no. And then you trained with her. Yeah, indeed, she seduced me. And parallel to my training analysis, I went to do my sandplay process. I was wondering if you would tell us a little bit about sandplay. It is used by a number of Jungian analysts, although not all. It is kind of a, I mean, it's not part of the classical training. It's an adjunct uh, technique, right? 
It's not a technique, it's a method. A method, okay. And what is the difference then between a technique and a method? Why would you call it that? A technique has no soul. A method has a soul. It has a soul, okay. So, to be honest, um, in the Jungian training, which I learned in Küsnach, uh, no, in Zurich at the time, okay. we did pictures, we, we, we did what we will speak about later, mm -hmm. the painting as uh, imagination, active imagination, or just painting from the unconscious. Sand play is actually, if I can say so, a step further, if you want. We have dreams, they have more or less no dimension dreams. We have pictures, paintings, they are two-dimensional. And then we have sound play, which is three-dimensional. Because the main tool is sand and water. Not the miniatures. The miniatures are actually, in my view, it's always my view. Interesting. Okay. Secondary. To the sand and the water. Hmm. Yeah. The miniature are kind of amplification and helping tools. But if you really look at sand play, the sand is three and has a lot to do with body. The sand has a lot to do with body. And, and I heard you say that the sand play tray is a little soul garden. And you had written a book about gardens. So did that spring from your work with Samplay? The opposite. Okay, the opposite. Okay, tell us about that. Well, now you uh, go very fast. I mean, I'm sorry, I jumped ahead. I jumped ahead. So we were at, you were at the Jung, the original Jung Institute in Zurich, and yes. and besides this, I do did Samplay, and I combined the two things. And you were doing Samplay while you were in training? Yes. And how um, did your, because you, you trained with uh, Marie-Louise von Franz, and what, did, yes. what yeah. did she think of the sand play therapy? She was very interested because I, at the Jung Institute, I wrote my diploma thesis on sand play case. Okay. Marie-Louise von Franz volunteered. She did not, she was not one of my examiners. She read it and she wrote one sentence. She was never writing a lot. She said, it is very interesting. Oh, nice. Oh, nice. She was fascinated by it because it is something like a series of pictures. It shows a process. You can really follow with these images and the comments and the, the story to it. You can follow the whole uh, therapeutic process, which is much more difficult with dreams. Yes. So now, do patients work in the sand play tray during their session, or is it something that they work on at home? I myself never worked with it, so I don't know. You cannot do sand play at home. Okay. That's the difference between painting, as Jung did, they painted at home. Sunday is done in presence of the analyst. Okay. And this makes Sunday in another way 
very interesting because you observe, you observe the movements, the sounds, the breathing, the laughing, the crying, everything you, you, you notice directly and you experience the transference because the transference from, from client to analyst becomes one on one hand is a direct transference that we, we know from analysis. Other, on the other hand, you see it broken through the sand. Mm. And see it in the creation in the sand. It's a very interesting and a very complex method, you know. Most people know only a little bit of about miniatures and a lot of, yeah. Right. But it's actually a very, very complex method. Yeah. Very complex method. And and if people are interested, if any of the listeners are interested in doing sand plate therapy, what would you suggest they do? Find a sand plate therapist? I mean, there is the International Society. Uh, there's a website. I'll provide a link to that in the show notes, and maybe they can find a practitioner in their area. No, I would say please study first Jungian on psychology. Okay. Because someday without a theoretical basis is actually nothing. I see. And it is something practiced by... So a sample therapist does not have to be a Jungian analyst. Is that correct? No, no. but actually in the statutes of the sample societies, it says we need... a. A, good, a very good knowledge in Jungian and analytical psychology, also in the principles of Jung's psychology. And we ask also for an in-depth um, analysis because in something, not only the transference, also the counter-transference is very important. So actually, you can do something in many ways. Mm-hmm. You can do it as a kindergarten teacher. You can do it well. As a logopedist, you can do it. But if you do it in a as a, as a a tool working with the unconscious, then you need to know what you are doing. Yeah, yeah. You need to know what you're doing. And so, how did your interest in gardens come about? My God, my. In Switzerland, every child has a garden. More. Okay. And um, the, this you can read in my book because it is translated in, in, into English. The garden was from the beginning the place for me of interest, of beauty, of secret, of nature, mm-hmm. of, of knowledge. And because the garden is not wild nature, the garden is contained, fenced in. It's an int- very intimate yes. space. And you know, uh, the garden belongs tightly to, the, to architecture because architecture, house in German is connected to Haut, which means skin. Also, house means an enveloped 
it is envelope with skin. A house has a, a, bot, a, a floor, walls, and a roof. But the garden, the word garden comes from Gordon, which means fence in. To fence in, okay. The garden is fenced in, piece of land, fenced in from wild nature, from desert, from, from uh, wilderness. Huh? So, and the garden is open to the earth and open to the sky. It's very different from house. Yes, and I, I noticed in your book, The Enchantment of Gardens, that there's a chapter called The Soul's Half Acre, From Outer Garden to Inner Garden. And I was wondering, how would you describe our inner garden? What is our inner garden? Yeah, that's now a very interesting thing. The garden is a mixture between nature and uh, and culture. Architecture is a cultural product. Okay. If you don't uh, take a, a cave in the in the in the, in the earth, but it's it's a man-made cultural product. The garden is a mix between natural aspects and human-made cultural aspect because the gardens um, are normally you can you can see directly connected to the house to the buildings you can even see in renaissance the building was like this the garden was so later on in the beginning of the last century the building was had a style the garden had the same style so to speak they go together. So the garden in our in us is kind of what we are by nature if you want and what has been cultivated in us. But it's a complex question you yeah. Yeah. Put one has to go more. But there is something interesting. Lawrence van der Post he wrote once in an article uh, about the wilderness in the garden of the soul. So that means that he um, stated we all in our natural part have still a wilderness. A wilderness inside of us. And I would say in in Jungian Psychology, we would maybe say it's the deepest co- collective unconscious where we, where we, we are still, um, how do you call this, wild man or the wild, wild human being? Huh? Yeah. Yeah. Inside of us. Yeah. Your first book was about, Dora, was about being a sampley therapist. And then your second book was about the enchantment of gardens. Yeah, but actually my first book was something different that has never been, no, it is about the dream image of the house. Would you tell us a little bit about that? I don't know about that one. Yeah, you don't know, because we have some, one American student 
made a translation, but it was never published. Okay. But this is a little book about, and I think it's really the, the beginning of all my reflections and writings about the connection between soul and house. What the, soul, the house actually means for us. I, I would love to read more about that because I've always been fascinated by that. I dream about houses all the time, and I... I've lived in a number of different houses in my life and a number of different condos and apartments. And I've always thought of them as a reflection of where I am at, at that time and looked at them that way. Also, it's now a, a, a desire of mine. This, this translation, it was Mara Rosenberger from Illinois. She did it. But um, it is not perfect, but I, it is maybe the lack of time that I did not care for it. And But you remind me that I really had to do the work now and re-look at this little book and um, maybe find the translator. Trans translator of the garden book was very good and he could do it. And then we look for a publisher. Okay. Sounds good. Yeah, I like that idea. So is there anything else you want to mention before we move on to the picture archive? Is there anything that you would like to say more about architecture or gardens? Well, no, I think it is a natural thing because I always was thinking in images since I'm a child. And I was drawing a lot, painting and drawing as a child. And later on, Sante is also a kind of drawing and designing yes. something. It's a mix between sculpting and, and painting. But, but I always was painting. I one, I don't know how many paintings of myself here. So that was always a part of mine. And then... In our institute, the, the picture archive was in a, you know, most of our students did not even know it exists, really. It was in a tiny little dusty, dark room. Well, I'd like to mention that when the, the and the only time I ever visited the Jung Institute in Kusnacht, it was actually closed that day and... I went there to see the grounds and somebody was trying to get in the, the door. I don't know if it was the main door or the side door and she was let in. And so I sort of followed her in and I had an old Blackberry at the time and I actually took video and I didn't, it's nowhere online because I, I wasn't, I didn't have permission to take the video. I didn't know if it was okay. It was just for my own memories, but I walked in that side door, down a hallway, just wrote just these hooks on the wall, hook after hook after hook. I love hooks. So I noticed these hooks. And then I went into the office. And while I was waiting to talk to the, the employee there, I noticed these glass cases, and there were paintings and drawings, and I knew they weren't, let's say, professionally done. And then I realized what they were. And 
I have some photos that I took of them and it was always in the back of my mind, what were those drawings doing there? And then when I saw um, through the research I was doing for the interview with your brother, Peter, that you were the curator of the picture archive at the Jung Institute. And I thought, okay, I need to talk to her. So there's a lot more to this story. And I'd like to start getting into that now. You presented this at the Congress in Vienna last year. And is that right? Because I found a paper that you had written on the Jung Institute's website called, and it's titled a quote by Jung, why do I encourage patients to express themselves by brush, pencil, or pen? Yep. So how did this all come to be? That artwork, I don't know if you'd call it that, was created by Jung's patients from the years 1917 to 1955. So there's a lot of it. And there's a there's a process of how that came to be. So let's start at the beginning with Jung asking his patients to draw or to paint. What was that about? Well, yeah, why did I encourage my patients to paint? Because he obviously saw or noticed that speaking was easy for people. You know, there is a lot of blah, blah. Right. Yeah. And obviously he painted himself a lot. So he asked them to, 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 to change now from blah, blah mm-hmm. and dream images, which also can be a lot of blah, blah, to trying yeah. to bring the pictures on the paper. And this is exactly the topic of my talk on the Memorial Day now. Because Jung gave us all these these paintings without any context and without names. We have some names because they are on the on the paintings, but we we of most of people we have no idea who it was. So you're saying that Jung had his patients do these paintings and drawings and he kept them uh, yeah. in an archive at the Institute. So did he intend for them to be made public? No, I don't think so, no. But it was okay to make them public because they were all anonymous, most of them. Well, now anonymous and, you know, after 70 years, which is now, um, the, the, we are no more um, bound bound to the families. But if we know the family, of course, we ask. Mm-hmm. Well, some of them are over 100 years old. Yeah. And after maybe 70, after our copyright law, is 70 years. Okay, 70 years. You know, he gave it to us, which is very different from the collection Yolanda Jacobi, because she had a lot of context to the pictures. Okay. It's very different. And I asked myself, again and again, why did he give us the pictures without any 
comments and no context. What is it actually? Yeah. What is it? And uh, lots of this you can read in his text, especially in volume 16, mm-hmm. The Aim of Psychotherapy. But you know, I'm not an archivist, I'm not a historian. Actually, I came to the uh, to be the curator just because I was interested in this moment, and mm-hmm. I was. But I am not the person who is interested so much in all the historical. Uh, well, well, what what interests me is that I did do some drawing and painting in my analysis, and it was very helpful. And I remember all of the paintings that I drew because I'm not, ironically, and as some of the listeners can tell, I'm not great with words. And I actually don't like to write. I've mentioned that a lot too. That's why I started a podcast because I didn't want to start a blog because I don't enjoy writing. I do enjoy speaking. But I also love art. And because my Twitter account, which I've had for over 10 years now, is mostly quotes by Jung and by Jungian analysts, because, and, and that exists because I like to share what I'm reading. And it also helps me focus when I read. And so if I come across something interesting, I like to share it with everybody. But I also balance the quotes with artwork. I've been visiting art galleries, you know, my whole, my whole life and, and art museums. And I started collecting art online. Um, I don't share it with anybody. But now I'm starting to share it on Twitter. And I don't interpret the piece. I don't write any comments. I just put the name of the piece and the artist. And I like to alternate um, when I do a graphic of a quote with an image. And they don't usually relate to one another. But there's usually something underlying that does because there's a reason why I've chosen that piece. So I like not commenting. It speaks for itself. Exactly. And this is now um, an interesting point for myself. You know, when we, in our uh, institute and in other institutes, we, one of the topics we learn it's even a topic for an exam, is the interpretation of pictures. Interpretation of pictures, okay. And this, of course, is one thing. Okay, we can use pictures to enter the psychic garden if you want an image of our client and to see maybe also about the pathology. But this... I did for many years. I was uh, one of the top examiners of this this topic, but I stopped and I don't want to do it anymore because behind all this, me, my interest is how come the pictures to us? 
And why are they coming to us? Because I had, I can give you an, an, an example. Okay. Now during this corona confinement, I was also painting and I had the strange experience that while I was watching the television twice, beside this, what I saw and heard, I had an image. Okay. And this image came up and I kept it over days and then I tried to paint it. But how comes a picture I see it clearly. Right. And here I see the television with all the stop, stupid corona news. Huh? Yeah. That's something uh, since many, many years I am interested in what I call the double eye. I can chew now and an image can come up. Just now I have to concentrate on you. But if I if there is something, what does it need that such pictures are not coming in my dream, but in my vision? In your waking life. This interests me really. Yeah. When I sit and look out of the window in my forest, when and under which condition comes an image that is double to the forest, huh? Different from the forest. Different, okay. I can see the concrete outer world and I see my inner image at the same time. At the same time, okay. But how and why does this happen to us? Mm -hmm. And what is the meaning of it? Because when I now saw these images and I kept them, and I tried to hold them and to paint them. And while I was painting, of course, I struggled with my incapacity to bring the image yeah. on the paper. That's always the same thing. Right. And while we do it, the image transforms also. The image transforms, okay. Once we have the image on the paper, what happens then? It's not just there. So would you say that these images in our mind's eye during our waking life are different than the dream images we have at night? Yeah, yeah. yeah. How are they different? <laughs> they are much more visible or graspable. Yes. A dream image, image can eventually be very clear, that's true. But it's not often that they are so done. Yeah. The, the dream images are a little bit more floating. But that when does a dream image come up? That's also interesting. Mm -hmm. And when does an because my, my clients just now, they dream not so much. And, and I say, but if you don't dream, maybe you see images. Keep them, keep them, and try to put them down. Mm -hmm. 
And and you would interpret them similarly uh, to the way that you interpret dreams? I'm not interpreting. No, okay. Uh, it depends really what you mean interpret. Okay. Well, I guess I, what I'm wondering is what do we do with this? How do we use this to better understand ourselves, where we are, for healing, for growth? It's exactly the question, why did Jung give us the pictures without comment? Maybe he did it on purpose. Now, what about Jung's paintings, Jung's drawings? Did he comment a lot on them when he gave those to us? His own? Yes. Yeah, I think, um, really, I don't know how much he commented or interpreted he did in the red book. You can see right what he says, but um, I wonder whether Jung was a very a free thinker. Actually, you know, he actually wanted the clients to be independent. I don't think he liked liked depending people, and I fantasize myself that he said. I give you the picture, think yourself or watch yourself or ponder yourself what it means to you. Mm -hmm. So this picture archive at the Jung Institute in Kusnacht, it existed in boxes. Um, and like I said, when I was there in 2015, I saw some on display in the office, the main office there. So how did they go from boxes to this exhibit that was displayed in 2018? Also, what you saw in the, in the glass vitrines in the office, these were facsimiles. Oh, they were, okay. Yes, because um, first of everything, I started to, to make, I asked, can I do some facsimiles and we sell them? Just because institute needs always money. Sure. Okay. That was one thing. So we have four pictures on facsimiles. And then, um, you know, when I uh, took over the, the picture archive, I looked into these paintings and I said to myself, how is it possible that we don't know about these pictures. Yes, we had two small exhibitions. One is about 15 years ago, or nearly 20, and one even older. Okay. Yeah, but small. Mm -hmm. But then I thought it's um, especially a series of paintings done through the Second World War, from 41 to 45. And I asked my colleague, Ingrid Riedl, who has my age, she was a child during the war in Germany. Mm -hmm. And I said, she is, must be the one who can write about these pictures because she knows what it means. And she said, yes. That was the beginning of everything. And then we, I said, and I would like to write about this case. And um, Verena Kostschel, she would write about mandalas. And so it composed the book. 
and from the book came the exhibition. Okay. And the exhibition, we traveled, also the picture were framed, the original picture were yes. framed, had an enormous sum of insurance and were exhibited in the, exposed in the museum in Lagerhaus. Yes, the museum there. And has it ever, have they ever been exhibited anywhere else? Or are there any plans to show them again? In Vienna, they are were exhibited and now they are waiting. The transport boxes are there, the frames, the pictures are still framed. Okay. So you know, Corona has a bit stopped everything. Yes. Yeah. yeah so, so they were shown at the Congress in Vienna last year. I, I didn't know that. And the papers that were presented at the Congress are available on the IAAP website. And I will put a link to that in the show notes. Mm -hmm. So did you, were you part of choosing which paintings were part of the exhibit and part of the book? Are they the same? Also, um, let's say so. <laughs> In so far, I was part of choosing because I proposed to my co-editors the, the the paintings because they have no nobody has access to the safes where the gray boxes are. Okay. Only I have the code. Only you, okay. That's no, great. no, there is a, somebody who has an, an, a, for security. Sure. But I have the code. I have to bring out the, the boxes. I have to show and say, what do you want? Here we are. This could be possible. And um, in so far, I was, not, of course, involved. And then for the exhibition, I worked together with the curator of the museum. Mm -hmm. I gave her the whole uh, online pictures and we choose this and this and this and this. Yeah. So you went through all 4,500 of Jung's patients' pictures and all 6,000 of Yolanda Jacobi's? No, no, no. no. Yeah. Yolanda Jacobi's, I have not yet seen all of them because this is a different thing, you know? Okay. The Jung's, the Pictures of Jung's uh, patients have been photographed on slides. And from the slides, they were scanned and now available online. Whether, but Jacobi's papers, uh, paintings and comments are still in the same format she gave it to us. And we are now doing the work to digitalize and sort this part mm -hmm. and there's more commentary you had mentioned to me that uh dr yacobi has texts and comments with her pictures yes, much more because she had the comments of the of the clients with it and um the names we know and yeah it's so much more wouldn't it depend on the the person? Wouldn't each picture be very personal to whoever made it? And so 
I guess I'm wondering what the exhibit is intended to do. It's an art exhibit or is it more an exhibit of psychology? I guess I'm wondering if these images are to be viewed and appreciated as art or as part of a psychological process. But now you are speaking of the collection Jung. Yes. We are going away from Jacobi again. Okay. Hmm? Also, Jung himself said it was not art. However, many of these pictures are so artistic and so beautiful, they are, it depends how we define art. That's yeah. the question. Mm-hmm. And um, for this, I discussed a lot with my nephew, who is the, the dean of the architecture, who was at the time in ETH, the dean of the department, history of architecture. And we talked about what is art and how do we define art? And this is now an, 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 a different discussion a different discussion and is that was that a private conversation or is that something that's available a part of it he wrote also in he, he contributed the text to the book also so i have not seen the actual book it is not um has not been translated into english unfortunately my italian is not good enough um what languages uh, has the book been translated into? Is it just in Italian? No, no. The no. original is German. The original is German. Yes. And the first and first was translated into Romanian and to Czechish. And then we made the English translation, but it was not published. And is that scheduled to be published? Don't ask me, please. Okay. I'm the curator of the pictures. I'm not. Gotcha. All <laughs> right. Yeah. Okay. We'll just wait and see on that one. So what was Jung's idea about the future? I mean, why did he preserve these pictures in the first place? As I said in volume 16, we can read a lot, but my own idea is that the picture is actually more, it's not my, there is a book by um, John Hillman, by James Hillman, saying, Am Anfang war das Bild. At the beginning was the image. He doesn't write a lot about this, but I think an image is a very basic uh, message to us. And we we did not go further, but I said once the picture is painted, mm-hmm. it invites us to probably in English you would say to ponder about the meaning. Right. What does it tell us? It is not something we can just interpret and understand because a picture has always so many different layers, but we can 
the image or the picture can lead us to reflections. Lead us to reflections. I really like that. Yes. And I think if you write the paper without having a, an image behind, a conceptual image also, it can be a big image, then the paper has no emotional um, aussage. Um, it doesn't say much. Mm -hmm. Right. These are empty papers like, you know, if you read, read a paper full of very intelligent things, right. but it doesn't give you anything. Right. It, because pictures are messages full of emotions. Mm. The colors are emotions, but the colors are also sensations, are sensual messages to us. I have a favorite artist, and I've been following her work for, oh, I don't know, 30 years now. And her son died tragically, and I noticed her paintings after that had really changed. And I mentioned that to her, and she hadn't thought about it that way. I mean, the colors that she chose were different, and... Mm -hmm. It just reminded me of that. Um, your upcoming memorial lecture is titled The Janus Head. What does that mean? So Janus, the, the, the sculptures of Janus are looking to the left and to the right. That means to the back and the future. And Janus was the god of transition from the past to the future. So um, for me, a picture archive, just having pictures in gray boxes, in steel safes, doesn't make any sense for right. me. The pictures must be used, not in so, so far that they invite, uh, invite us to go on with this more picture of thinking thinking in pictures yeah yeah um, and to to see that the images of the pictures are have a deep meaning right and our today intellectual way of writing papers is Empty. Yes, is empty. Yes, and especially today in the corona confinement, I can see that people start to introvert, and what is coming up in the peace and in the space they have, images are coming up. Why is that? Why? Yeah. Also, I, I, I would say it's the natural situation for human beings, but we have destroyed everything by our rushing around, by our, our hectic, um, hectic uh, life. Yeah, the pace. And we are, 
yeah, we we are um, covering everything with our activism. Let's say so. I heard you mention that deep inner work, you know, requires a lot of time and dedication because the psyche moves slowly. And we need 15, 20 years to grow up. So how could we possibly change something in 10 hours? We can change a lot if we then stay with it. We have to stay with it, yeah. That's that's what is my fear, that after the, the corona is over, we go back to the same activism. Right. And we'll have learned nothing. Yeah. So would you say a little bit more about how we need to spend time and we need to have dedication to this process, to ourselves, our psyche? The best image for everything is Jung himself. What did he do when he, when he moved out of his home to the tower where he had no running water, no electricity? He was living in modest harmony with nature, as he said. And he had the time and the peace and the emptiness, so to speak, to receive the essential images. And to think about it, to let it have an effect on him. And that brings me to the second part of the quote that you bring up in the paper that Jung mentioned, and it's in volume 16 of the Collected Works. And he said, but why do I encourage patients when they arrive at a certain stage in their development to express themselves by means of brush, pencil, or pen at all? And the Mm -hmm. second part is, here again, my prime purpose is to produce an effect. Yep. Not which effect. That's interesting. Hmm? Why, why did you include that? What does that mean? To produce an effect. Now you have to think yourself. He also left it to us. I... Ask myself, was it an emotional effect? What was it? A physical effect? Or what is it? Mm -hmm. I think we have to... In German, we would say eine Wirkung. You know, the German word is is different from effect. Wirken is something more internal. You use in English the word effect for many things. Huh? Right. That's true. You can be if you are activating. Wirkung is something that goes slowly into depth. Wirkung, die Wirkung und Einwirken means. Um, Sinking in and then developing inside. I can't say it better. Sinking in and then developing inside, which is yeah, kind of what some of us are doing during this corona 
virus crisis? Mm -hmm. It's sinking in. That means let something invade us also, you know? It is essential. It is a mental thing. It, 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 it covers everything in us. I wonder if this this isolation, this lockdown, this quarantine is a compensation for something. No, you can't think so. I think that's also something we just can observe. What happens and you see, and we feel the effect on ourselves. Hmm? Are there any words you would like to leave us with? One thing I noticed in more or less all my analysts talking and in myself, how important nature becomes now and how strong nature is. If you think that in this short time of, let's say, two, three months now, the dolphins are coming back in the Gulf of Naples, in Venice, the, flower, the, the, the insects are recovering, the birds are coming back. It's enormous how resilient nature is. Yes. But how easily we can destroy it. Right. Right. We see the stars. And we... We, we see much more because there are no airplanes, no stripes in the sky. We, it's enormous what a difference it makes. But I'm afraid that we, we love so much this rushing around and acting out. We love it so much. Now, actually, the most important thing is that we learn to live out of ourselves and not reacting all the time. Now we are reacting to Corona, but this brings us back to ourselves. Right. These are things. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you. Thank you for sharing all of that with us. Thank you, Laura. That was a very interesting talk. Please visit the website, speakingofjung, that's J-U-N-G, dot com for more information about everything that was discussed in this episode. There you will also find all of the previous episodes of this podcast, which are available to stream or to download for free. This podcast is also available on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, TuneIn, Spotify, and iHeartRadio and will be available later on our YouTube channel. You can also listen to this episode on your Amazon Echo device simply by saying, Alexa, play Speaking of Jung on Apple Podcasts or TuneIn. Just be sure to pronounce Jung with a hard J. So with special thanks to Peter Amon, this is Laura London, and you've been listening to Speaking of Jung. <laughs>